You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Stephen Ellis from the University of Galway, entitled Creating the South Dublin Military Frontier Under the Early Tudors. Ireland's leading medievalist, Robin Frame, famously described uh, the medieval lordship of Ireland as a land of many marches. The South Dublin marches, lasting for four centuries until the Tudor conquest, were the most prominent and most closely researched, but more for the later medieval development than for their Tudor denouement. Historical inquiries into the South Dublin marches have also matched the recent growth of interest in frontier and border, border studies across Europe. But patterns of border formation elsewhere suggest that conventional accounts here uh, of uh, Ireland's uh, ongoing, or the South Dublin's ongoing English contraction over three centuries was highly exceptional. Medieval marches were commonly moving frontiers, reflecting local changes in the balance of power rather than a fixed boundary. Early modern frontiers were frequently different in size and shape, with more clearly defined limits, typified by military frontiers. So South Dublin's military frontier replicated patterns of border formation elsewhere, as this paper argues, and was also pretty successful. Allegedly, Ongoing contraction uh, was such that by 1460, in Newcastle Barony, two of the tiny uh, royal domain's four manors, Saggart and Newcastle, lay at its southernmost edge, the nearby mountains serving as a natural frontier. Irish raiding allegedly was so acute that a dikes and ditch system was constructed there, part of which uh, became the Pale but it did little to stem the tide of Irish raids, which actually escalated, apparently. In reality, the Pale in South Dublin was successful. Four statutes were passed between 1460, 1477, 1488 and 1495, ordering the institution of a permanent system of standing defences, with a line of earthworks supported by defensive towers and manned by local levies. The 1460 statute ordered the initial line of dikes and ditches in Newcastle and Rathdown baronies. Recognition as a military frontier came later with the statute of Poynings Parliament in 1495 for ditches to be made about the English Pale. The foreshire's description as a pale after the Cali Pale, where Poynings was recently governor, highlighted its military character. South Dublin's transition from medieval marches to military frontier also coincided 
with its incorporation into a broader English pale, transforming the frontier in size and shape. The 1495 statute ordered additional earthworks, a double ditch along the frontiers of the marches, which had hitherto remained open and not defensible in fastness of ditches and castles. Those earthworks earlier er erected along the March Mahari boundary, as fixed by the statutes of 1477 and 1488, were constructed by teams of labourers um, from adjoining baronies. But the 1495 statute made each marcher personally responsible for erecting new earthworks at the end of his land, which joineth next unto Irishmen. The marchers had earlier been fixed uh, by Bishop Sherwood's Parliament in 1477, which had uh, uh, laid down a March Mahari boundary in South Dublin along the line of the earthworks created by Statute of 1460. And the final clause there provided for later advances in this moving frontier with further ditches in the wastes or Farsachlands without the said marches. To oversee the new construction, the statute appointed as commissioners in South Dublin the Archbishop and the Sheriff. The Archbishop's role in 1495 reflected his earlier position as a great defender and maintainer of the South Dublin borders from Dolkey uh, to Ballymore. But he needed to consult Sherwood's Act in 1477 for its definition of the marches, and this probably explains the entry in Archbishop Allen's register headed bounds of the Mahari within the four obedient shires. Now, earlier I thought that this entry referred to the following 1488 Act of Marches and Mahari, but I now think uh, it summarises key points in Sherwood's Act in 1477. It lists five South Dublin townships along a line from Bootestown uh, to Newcastle, all in the Mahari. It lists five South Dublin townships along the line to Newcastle, all in the Mahari, then traces the Mahari's bounds from Newcastle and Castle Warden uh, in Kildare, and then on to, into Meath and Louth. The next paragraph, drawn from the 1488 Act, revised the March Mahari boundary in Dublin and Kildare, noting that in Dublin the Mahari's bounds ran from Merion to the water of Dodder by the new ditch to Saget, so to Rathcool and on to Ballinmore. Before listing then uh, more townships in south-east Dublin as being in Mahari uh, in Dublinshire. So the, the Act's main aim was to regulate coin and livery. It traced a similar line to the 1477 Act for the Dublin March Mahari boundary, but it took a shorter route between the River Dodder and Saget via the new ditch and a tighter line around the mountains into Kildare via Rathcool and Kilteel. So lands previously on the boundary line further north around Belgard, Newcastle and Castle Warden were now Mahari ground, as were marchlands between Bootestown and Dorkey, including seven named townships. 
The differences reflect adjustments in the March-Mahari boundary between 1477 and 1488. Extra earthworks like the new ditch, built nearer the mountains, improved security with more land now designated as Mahari. And the reference to the new ditch as marking a revised boundary also confirms that the statutory boundary usually followed the original earthworks of 1460. Whether marchland or Mahari ground was also critical to tenant rents and defence arrangements. The 1488 Acts um, extended Mahari, increased Archb the Archbishop of Dublin's rents for lands like Dorkey, which was now free of coin and livery. The Act, in effect, promoted an internal administrative boundary across the region, regulating arrangements for raising troops for local defence and for general hostings. Within the Mahari, coin and livery was always prohibited. In the marches, landlords could quarter horsemen and kern on their own tenants, but these troop costs were offset by reducing the tenant's rent. So other methods of defence might be preferred, but indirectly the Act promoted a local force maintained by coin and livery defending earthworks and towers across the March-Mahari boundary. As the frontier's description as a pale suggests, these earthworks were sometimes topped by a palisade, so strengthening a defensible position against Irish raids. But the main purpose was to, to dis discourage the um, driving of krachs of cattle out of the Mahari. By 1500, uh, general hostings were the main mobile force for military operations against the Irish. Marcher landlords sent one horseman to each hosting for every 10 marks of annual income and also contributed to the 40 kern indifferently cessed on the South Dublin marches. By contrast, Mahari landlords sent one bowman on foot for every 20 pounds worth of land but contributed no kern. The government's priority, though, remained the South Dublin districts directly north of the mountains, near a Dublin city and the four royal manors. Here, the main line of earthworks was especially prominent uh, along the March-Mahari boundary. And these districts also contained the highest concentration of stone castles in the English Pale. The military frontier's impact on political conditions was immediately evident in Newcastle Barony, which was long and broad, including Sackett and Newcastle Lions Manors, each of them over 4,000 acres. By 1470, Sackett's tenants were reduced to paying the O'Toole's a black rent to avoid border raids. And when this black rent was repudiated, the O'Toole's and Burns destroyed a great part which were not uh, well enclosed. Sackett's southern uplands under the mountains were either waste or among the Harolds, a disruptive English martial lineage whose country extends from Sagat to Kilmashogue and was in rebellion in 1470. In nearby Newcastle, some, ten some tenants left when coin and livery was imposed, but in 1475, Parliament freed the manor from this exaction, 
provided they well and truly make their ditches. Labourers from across Dublin also repaired Saggart's ditches, improving its defences. Extensions to the dikes and ditches and changes to the Marchmahary boundary improved security across Newcastle boundary, barony. The 1460 earthworks and the 1477 Marchmahary boundary had run from Tallach to Belgard back to Saggart, then northwest to Newcastle before entering Kildare at Castle Warden, so leaving much of Saggart and Newcastle in the march. But after 1477, the new ditch east of Saggart and the revised March Mahari boundary further west followed a tight, tighter line around the mountains via Rathcool uh, and Kilteel. So by the 1488 Act, most of Saggart and all of Newcastle was Mahari ground, free from coin and livery. Government control over the Harolds was also restored. Harold's country becoming a fortified march between the Atulls and the Burns and the Newcastle Mahary. By 1493, Thomas Harold was serving as Portreeve of Saggart, and the Harold captain, Edmund Harold, bound over to keep the peace in 1482, was in 1496 deployed in the Newcastle marches by the Poynings regime under Theobald Walsh, Walsh in holding 20 horsemen and 20 footmen uh, of Walshmen and Harolds. By the early 1530s, John Harold, captain of that part of the marches called Harold's Country, with custody of its castles and forts, even served as sheriff of County Dublin. As political conditions improved and Irish raids declined, the two manors recovered in value from a low point of £60 yearly for two of them before 1473 to £58 yearly to, for Newcastle by 1495 and £15 yearly for Saggart. By 1502, under the Great Earl, their values had risen again to £66 and £21 respectively, a 45% increase in 30 years and restoring Saggart's value to sums last realised in 1388. And this didn't include increased rents now received from external holdings in the mountains. 340 acres of land in Harold's country worth £6 a year in 1496, Ballymurgy uh, worth £4 annually in 1502, Corbally and Salisbarn worth £3 yearly in 1521. Another indication of improving conditions was the marked increase in Newcastle Barony's assessment for the parliamentary subsidy, based on an extension of tillage in a larger mahari, rising from 40 ploughlands in 1479 to 58 ploughlands by 1533, the highest assessment of any pale barony. In the Pale Marches, more disturbed conditions meant less tillage, but in Newcastle, the frontier's new standing defences combined well with traditional methods for deploying the barony's military manpower and English weaponry. In the 1530s, Chief Justice Luttrell praised Newcastle barony adjoining to the Atulls as better defended by the English husband's inhabitants and copy freeholders thereof 
and their great and sure villages with their English bows and bills, having no holding of no kern, horsemen, and no galaglass than any other march in this land, and yet they live still after an English sort and manner. Beyond Newcastle Lions, the Kildareals extended the military frontier by a different strategy, building manorial villages to promote tillage on conquest land, protected by ditches and defensive towers serving as strong points, manned by tenants armed with longbows. Each of the March Mahari boundary uh, from uh, Kiltil to Rathmore and Ballymore uh, Eustace, um, sorry, I said east of, a, uh, of the boundary, a thin strip of the South Dublin marches rose steeply uh, into the high mountains. And the Great Earl expelled the Atulls from that region, built a cluster of defended townships, 22 great and sure villages, restored tillage there and erected towers for the tenants' defence. Most were organised into three castles and Hollywood manors, later passing to the Great Earl's younger son and worth over £52 a year by 1534. Surviving earthworks near three castles in the upper Liffey Valley stand further into the mountains than the March Mahari boundary, barring the mountain paths from a tools country, and probably the product of the 1495 statute ordering a second double ditch on lands which joineth next to Irishmen. Three Castles uh, Manor probably had 39 tenants in 1540, with 57 tenants in surrounding townships. And from their names, the lead tenants were mainly Irish, eight of them serving on the extent juries. Lacking English husbandmen, Kildare attracted in poor Irish earth tillers to restore tillage on the land, offering grants of English law. And once sworn English, they were also liable for military and jury service. Those worth £10 in goods were required to have an English longbow. But a major setback for the marchers in 1538 also showed the limitations of this form of defence. Forty bowmen defending a prepared strong point like Three Castles was an effective force against the Atulls, whose power was just 24 horsemen and 80 kern. But archers on foot, caught in the open ground, were very vulnerable. Such husbandmen as Atulls kern met with, they slew them for they had no horses to flee, and as a result, over 60 of the uh, tenants were killed. Further east, around Fercullen, a plain and valley amongst the mountains, the Greater repeated this strategy of restoring English manorialism to consolidate a military frontier, mounting repeated expeditions from 1497 for banishing of the Atulls out of Fercullen, who were then clearly exiled and expulsed, and the country in possession with Kildare and his brethren. In like manner, uh, the Fertir was taken from the Burns further south, extending Kildare's control in south-east Dublin towards Wicklow. For Cullen itself was mostly mountains, woods and rocks, 
but with some good fertile land around Powerscourt, where the Earl reintroduced tillage, reviving the district's earlier role as an English strong point. It had formerly been Ballytierney, and extending, uh, erecting a water mill and building Newcastle in Fercolum for the tenants' defence. Later renamed Powerscourt, this was one of the fairest garrisons in this country, cost 4,000 marks for the defence of the tools and the burns. By 1534, Kildare's power court base had stretched south to include Fasserow, Cravach and Rathdown Manors, where Kildare also restored tillage with towers for the tenants' defence and eight water mills. The manors all lay in the marches, but close enough to the 1488 boundary and its earthworks for integration into a coordinated system of defences. A military frontier had replaced the extended march. Further south, the Kilderals now controlled 14th century strong points towards Wicklow, expelling the Aburns and the tools for around Castle Kevin in the Furter and recovering Newcastle McKinnigan, though both lay too far from the main earthworks for integration into the military frontier. By 1518, as the Kildare rental showed, South Dublin's recovery had been consolidated by favourable, albeit fragile, peace treaties with Leinster chiefs. Leading O'Toole, O'Byrne and McMurray-Kavner clansmen commonly paid for their defence fourpence yearly for every cow and sometimes more. The military frontier was also consolidated from Sagat around to Bray by reviving government control over the martial lineages there, like the Walshmen. In Rathdown Barony, John Walsh, captain, was bound over in 1482 to keep the peace, along with other Walshmen and John Lawless and Edmund Harold. Kildare's growing power here reigned in March of Ireland's and lawlessness, but the Walshmen also improved their position. In 1485, Theobald Walsh farmed the King's Manor of Thorncastle towards Dorking, but then it was in frontura marchie and mostly waste, worth nothing beyond defence costs. But the 1488 boundary revision placed Thorncastle within the Mahri, and in 1496, Walsh was farming Thorncastle for £5 a year. Now, with decent Mahri lands at Thorncastle and Carrick Mines, Walsh served as sheriff in 1494-5, a significant departure from traditional reliance on North Dublin gentry for sheriffs. The lineage's acquisition of lands uh, in an enlarged Mahari thus helped to reintegrate into the county community and extend the reach of government. Typically, the Welshmen had lived on the Pale border uh, in the pastoral uplands and wooded dis districts towards the mountains, such as Kiltiernan, a mile, a mile further into the mountains beyond Ballycorus in Welshmen's lands, which in 1545 touched the extreme parts of the English Pale towards the O'Toole's. In 1533, a Tudor reform treatise underlined the Lynch's key role in frontier defence. Uh, the Pale's strength 
now consisteth in the marchers, notably Walshmen and Harolds, who for the defence of the country or exploit to be done did come forth with a band of horsemen and footmen, and all being together made for a, a goodly company. By 1500, South Dublin's military frontier boasted a formidable belt of stand, standing defences anchored along the March Mahary boundary by an extended line of earthworks around the, mount, the mountains from Dorkey to Ballymore uh, and more towers and castles than any other district. Standing defences in other pale shires appeared by contrast to be more of a makeover, relying heavily on watercourses and pre-existing earthworks around uh, landed estates. The State of Ireland in 1515 intriguingly reported a, a contrary view about South Dublin's uh, recovery. It said, the King's subjects had never better peace with, Irish, with, with their enemies in 300 years. Uh, Irish enemies were never more a dread of the king's deputy, and Englishman's lands was never better tilled in this hundred years than now, and this could not be done without the king's uh, deputy's uh, army and retinue. The acid test for the new uh, frontier, though, uh, was that uh, the power of the O'Toole's and the O'Burns declined quite considerably during this period. Patrick Fingless, in his breviate, said of the Atulls and the Burns in 1537 that they cannot make a hundred horsemen besides the Irish inhabitants who were Kern and were not in a hundred years or more feebler to be conquered than now. In 1546, the Lord Deputy said that uh, Irishmen were never so weak uh, and the Burns were not half the horsemen they have been, the tools of no strength. South Dublin's military frontier was no Tudor Iron Curtain, but it was broadly successful, and it enabled recovery of much English ground lost since 1300. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.